Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. I'm going to jump into the scriptures right away. Who wants to, everybody ready to jump in the scriptures a bit? You good? Yeah, okay, that's good. Yeah, get get excited about that. So um, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 20. Uh, I want to start by reading the scriptures. I often start talking first and blobbing away, but I want to just start and just kind of jump right into the scriptures and let us listen to it as we do. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 20. Here's what it says. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair, a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. I just always laugh when I read that description of him. Uh, He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thongs of his sandals. Uh, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the, and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were there by their boat mending nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Let's just pray for a moment. God, we're so grateful to worship together. I'm just, my heart is already full this morning from our time of worship and celebration, retelling the story um, of scriptures. Uh, you know, together in song and through scripture and prayers, God, the people that I've had a chance to meet already, thank you. And we just pause right now in this moment. We invite you to grab a hold of our hearts, our minds, our attention. We live in such a distracted society, and I admit that myself. And I just invite you to grab a hold of our attention today to hear you through um, this gospel text. And um, we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm a natural evangelist. Now, be careful. I don't mean like I'm a natural evangelist, like I'm always like 
leading someone to Jesus. I have led some people to know who Jesus is and follow him. But I'm a natural evangelist in the sense where, like, if I buy something or I've experienced something or I've been somewhere, if you know me, you've probably heard about it. Because I'll tell you about it. My son um, had, had some friends over a while back, some friends from work. And uh, one of the people there was going on a trip, and they were, they were looking to buy an e-reader. And so I'm like, I have an e-reader. So I pulled out my e-reader, and I took it out, and I, I showed her, and I, I talked about it. And I told her why I love it, and I explained how I use it, and which books I buy paperback. And like I did the whole spiel. Like This is my whole e-reader experience and why I, I use e-readers for what and what I don't use it for. And the next time I saw her, I said, how was the trip? She's like, great. I bought the e-reader before I went. And I'm like, I got no commission off of that. So, but that, that's evangelism in its simplest form, right? It's, it's letting other people know something about something you really have come to appreciate or maybe something you think is the best thing in the world and why they should consider it, why they should at least consider it and think about it. And today, as we jump into the fall season, we start this brand new series, and it's a simple word. It's just the word alert. Now, sometimes you think of the word alert, and you think like, oh, emergency or something. But really, the the sense of the word alert is just alerting people to something. It's announcing something. It's telling somebody something special. And as we jump into this season right now, I want to talk about something that we haven't talked about in a while. We've had some other focuses uh, in the last uh, season or so, and, uh, and I want to talk about this idea of mission, not just global mission or compassion or how, how Oscar talked about it today, but um, something a little bit more focused, which is locally alerting people to the gospel of Jesus, to the gospel of God's kingdom. And as soon as I say that, some of you here, because I know there's some people here, even here for the first or second time, or maybe you're just exploring with us, and maybe you're even a Christian, and when you hear this, this gets a bad rap, because as I say it, it maybe triggers something for you. When I was in um, Bible school doing a Bachelor of Theology, I joined, like, for one semester, this evangelism group. And they said, okay, guys, you're going to go downtown, and we're going to give you some pamphlets, and we're going to encourage you to speak to people. And I went for 12 weeks in a row, and I had one or two really good conversations, but to be honest with you, most weeks, I kind of sat on the bench, and I left, with the, I left the pamphlets there, and then I, I ended the night. And I was like, if that's your trigger of evangelism, I'm sorry, because that maybe is like the only thing that you know about that. Now, Bart, I had some great conversations over 12 weeks, but what I remember often about just kind of like go downtown, talk to people that you never heard of, you never met before, that kind of freaked me out. And so for some people, maybe you have a trigger of bad evangelism or scary evangelism or guilty evangelism or manipulative evangelism. That's the worst. And I get it. Because I've come to realize, this is an important phrase and I put it on the screen so we remember it, what we win people with is what we win people to. Remember that. What we win people with is what we win people to. If we win people, someone to faith out of fear, we're winning them to a fearful faith. If we are winning people out of guilt, we're winning them to a guilty faith. You get what I'm saying? What we win people with is what we win people to. If we win people to Jesus by promising them a gadget and and this and a perfect life and whatever... We're winning them to a faith that says everything's going to be perfect in your life. And so we got to be cautious even about that. And that's why some of us might have triggers about evangelism. 
Now, that's not to say that there's no negative effects to rejecting the message of Jesus. There is, because if he's so good and there's something wonderful and we reject it, there's a negative effect to that. But there's also a negative effect to unbiblical evangelism. And I often tell, um, talk, when I talk with some friends about this, I say, you know what, you could, you could see a whole bunch of people come to faith, but you might not realize that how you're leading those people to faith, you're losing another hundred people that will never walk in the church again. So we got to be mindful about that. My hope for the next few weeks is that we can frame or, or reframe evangelism through the lens of some key New Testament texts so we can learn, maybe unlearn, maybe relearn what evangelism is and our part to play in it. That's the beauty of it. We have a part to play in this. So Mark, Mark starts his gospel telling us about the story of Jesus because that's what the gospel is. Every gospel in the scriptures, the four gospels, are telling us about the story of Jesus. The gospels are part of the larger gospel. And he's immediately alerting us to the core of who Jesus is. He says, let me start just telling you the beginning of the good news. That's what he says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. That word that we see right there in the middle, or that phrase actually, two words, is the word good news. In Greek, it's actually the word euangelion. That's the word, euangelion. It's usually used as a verb or activity. That's why if you can, even when you hear it in Greek, euangelion, it kind of sounds like evangelism, right? I mean, if I transliterate it. And so it, it, usually it's used as a verb or an activity like evangelism or evangelizing, but it's so much bigger than that. It's an announcement. It's, it's news. And it's alerting people to good news. In fact, the prefix, those first two letters, U-E-U, uh, it refers to something joyful. And the last part of the word, angelion, refers to an announcement or news. When uh, the late Tim Keller kind of put these two together, the prefix and the word, he describes euangelion as news that brings joy. It's news that brings joy. And that's why we call it good news. That's why at Christmas when we sing about Jesus coming to, into our world, we sing about these glad tidings, this good news, this news that brings joy. When Mark starts this, he says, this is the beginning of the good news. It's just getting started. I'm just, like, I, let me just tell you how this story starts. That's kind of how Mark starts because it's the start of an announcement, it's the beginning of this news that brings joy. It's kind of part of a really larger communication campaign. News that we should pay attention to. And, and Mark is incredible when he brings this together because he tells us it's the start of this. Then he goes back to one of the prophets, Isaiah, that foretold of someone that was coming to prepare the way for this good news. So not only is this good news arriving, coming, he's going to tell us about it. He looks back into the Old Testament scriptures, someone like Isaiah, that foretold that someone was coming even before this good news to prepare us for this good news. And we meet this figure, John the Baptist, that I kind of you know, just laugh at that verse because he's an eccentric figure. You know, camel's hair, eats locust, lives in the wilderness. I mean, well, actually, that's pretty cool today, maybe, in some parts, you know, parts of our culture. That's pretty cool. So, but it's eccentric, right? Old Testament-like prophet, hang out in the wilderness. But this, this is the beauty of John the Baptist. He was tuned into what God was doing, and he wanted people to get ready for it. He was tuned in to what God was doing, 
and what God was up to, and he was tuned into the timing that something big was on the horizon. John saw something big on the horizon coming, and he joins into the communication campaign, kind of like a precursor to the news that's coming. So his role was to prepare people for that news, and that's why he's baptizing people in that time frame, even in that culture, even in the Jewish tradition, baptism had this idea of, of turning your life around, of getting ready for something, of, of, of reorienting your it was a physical expression of repentance. And repentance basically means make a U-turn. That's what the word repentance means. John is baptizing people, and it's referred to as a baptism of repentance. It's an invitation to make literally a, a, almost in a physical way something that's going on internally that you are making a change, you're making a U-turn to be ready to move in a different direction. And part of the call to repentance is the forgiveness of sin. In, a set, in other words, like, let's get our lives ready to recognize what's coming and what God is doing in our day. And if that means that I need to turn my life around and literally have this, I want to do this with a new slate, with a fresh slate, with a recognition that, that I have been um, part of, complicit with the life I was leading or a life that was missing what God is doing. Well, I want to turn now and repent and find forgiveness so I can freshly follow this new thing. So his role is preparing people for the way of Jesus. But John knew Jesus is what people were really waiting for. Like John had no thought in his mind like, I'm the guy. He said, someone more powerful than me is coming. I can't even like, I shouldn't even untie his sandals. And he's like, I'm gonna, we're doing a baptism here of repentance. This, this, physical, this, this physical, mental, holistic decision to be ready. But when he comes, that's another level. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So John is getting ready for Jesus coming. And Jesus shows up for baptism too. That's what happens. Jesus shows up for baptism in the same body of water. And John baptizes him. Now, obviously, Jesus was ready. Obviously, he was ready for what was coming because he was what was coming. But he also went into the waters of baptism because he was joining the announcement. He was joining the announcement of this good news. And the, 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 the baptism and then the moment in the desert is so instrumental because Jesus in his baptism is affirmed in who he is and what he's doing and why he's there. And that's where the heavens open up and he hears God's voice through the Holy Spirit saying, like, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So there's an affirmation in the baptism, but then there's a testing in the desert as Jesus immediately is sent to the desert and he's tested He's tested in the wilderness. John preaches in the wilderness. Jesus is preparing in the wilderness. That's very different. And as Jesus is preparing, what comes next is launch day. He's sent. And, and nothing really significant. Uh, we don't know much about Jesus until, af uh, until after his baptism because after his baptism, he then starts doing what we know Jesus does. He speaks and teaches and calls people and eventually heals and all this kind of stuff. And so he's now launched into this. And here is the beautiful moment that I just want to hover on for a bit. It's verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was baptized, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming, what does it say? What did he proclaim? Good news. That was like weak. Could we say that again? What did he proclaim? Awesome. Okay. So 
he proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the what? The good news. Second time we read about good news in this introduction, Mark first introduces it to us. Of course, it's all about Jesus, but now it's like Jesus takes the mic and says, okay, let me announce this. Let me, let me bring this to being. And he takes the mic and he fills in the gaps about what this announcement is because Mark just says, here's the beginning of the good news. When Jesus describes this, he helps us understand what the good news is. And he says, the good news is the kingdom of God has come near. The time is fulfilled. The time is now. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this good news. So Jesus tells us what this good news is. The good news is that God's kingdom is breaking into our world. Now, if you've been part of our church for a while, you know that we have helped us understand that when we talk about heaven and earth, we're not talking about two distant places. We're talking about God's space and our space, heaven and earth. And when Jesus says, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth that is in heaven, he's not like, like oh, let, let God's will show up from 500, miles, 500 million miles away and show up here. It's like, no, God is always present and active. And we we pray that his will would be done here where we are aware of things. And so here we read that God, the kingdom of God has come near. And a kingdom involves a king. And a kingdom involves kingly rule. And a kingdom involves a way of life. We don't live in kingdoms today, and there are some kingdoms still part of our global world, but a king in, or in a society where a king rules, the king rules. And it's the king's rule that, that kind of shapes that society and that way of life. And so here, this is the important thing. God's kingdom reflects God. God's kingdom reflects God. And we know who God is through the scripture. We know him even more fully as Jesus arrives in the biblical story because God's kingdom reflects who God is. Leslie Newbegin said that the kingdom of God is this, that the reign of God in his kingly power in the man Jesus. So God's rule and reign, his vision, his kingly power in the person of Jesus. That's the heartbeat of what it means to say God's kingdom has come near. It means God's desire, God's hopes, God's rule, God's reign is breaking into our world, into our space. And the fulfillment meant two things, at least in that time period. One, for Israel, the first people who would have heard this, it was mainly Jews uh, understanding this at first, and, and uh, it's, it, it, it meant this, that the kingdom of God coming near fulfilled the hopes of Israel. Israel, for centuries, was longing that God would come and rule and reign and bring fulfillment to the promises that they knew, and they lived for 400 years, almost like in a, in a sense of darkness, and now they're living under the Roman Empire, who set up a king named Herod, who, uh, Herod, who leads them, but it's not, it's, not, it's not the fulfillment of what God longs for. And so when God's kingdom shows up, it fulfills the hopes of Israel, or meant to fulfill the hopes of Israel. But it's also meant to fulfill the purpose of Israel because Israel lost its purpose. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. It wasn't just about them. It was for the whole world. Like Isaiah 49, 7 says that they would be a light to the nations so everyone would, would come to know who God is or has the opportunity to. 
So when the kingdom of God comes near, it doesn't only fulfill the hopes of Israel, it fulfills the purposes of Israel because now God is taking the reins through Christ and Jesus begins to fulfill Israel's vocation for the purposes of Israel, inviting the nations. In fact, if you're here today and you call yourself a follower of Christ, you're part of that purpose being fulfilled. You're part of that purpose being fulfilled. It's more than fulfillment, though, because in that time period, for some that were in there, for, for those that were in that, in that culture at the time, it also meant a better kingdom, a better empire. Because we know, if you've read anything about church history, or you just read the news today, the kingdoms of this world, whether they're called kingdoms or powers or other forms of government, there's ups and downs, and there's injustice and greed and unfortunate things that take place. And so even in that time period, even though Rome brought the Pax Romana and Rome did so many extraordinary things that we could admire, the people living within that, they were longing for a better kingdom, a better empire. Israel and the world needed the good news, not just Israel. Israel and the world needed the good news. Israel was tragically waiting for this. The world was hungry for it. And when we think about that simple phrase that the kingdom of God comes near, I like Tim Keller describes it this way. It's the sense that all things will be well. When God's kingdom begins to break in, it doesn't happen in an instant. We know that the future of God's kingdom is fulfilled in the future. But what begins to take place is this sense that, oh, all things will be well. It's kind of like in the Chronicles of Narnia when everything is frozen and there's just a sense of despair. It's like as soon as Aslan comes onto the scene, people start to sense, oh, everything's going to be well. Something's going to be different. Our future is not going to be our past. Aslan is on the move. All things will be well. A contemporary of C.S. Lewis, his name was J.R. Tolkien. He wrote the famous book and the movies, or where the movies came from, Lord of the Rings. And uh, that whole story is about kingdoms in Middle Earth. And there's a phrase in there that talks about uh, when you discover the, a good kingdom, and, it, and Tolkien writes these words. He says, the hands of the king are healing hands. The hands of the king are healing hands. That reflects God's kingdom. The hand, when the hands of the king are not greedy hands, corrupt hands, oppressive hands, power-hungry hands, but when the hands of the king are healing hands. And so there, the summary is kind of like this. God's kingdom breaks into our world through Jesus, and that breaking into our world will lead to a full future renewal or renewed creation, where one person wrote, where everything sad will become untrue where everything sad will become untrue. Now, we don't have time to go into the difference between why don't we see it all here now and why will we see it all in the future? We've done talks like this and we've walked through scriptures like that, but it is true. It's, it's an already, it's a now type of kingdom, but it's, an, it's a not yet type of kingdom because we still live in the middle of the fullness of that kingdom. That's another story, okay? Now, all this happens, and this is where this kind of fits into why, why we're jumping into this series this, this month and, and how we're going to pro progress in the next few weeks. All this happens. Jesus arrives. God's kingdom is announced. This communication campaign happens, and it happens under another son of God. 
now, if, like, don't go crazy with thinking about comic movies. It's not like, like there's a replica of Jesus somewhere in another multi-universe. Multi That's not what I'm talking about. But there's another son of God on the scene, and his name is Caesar Augustus. Some of, them knew, some of the people called him Octavian. He was the Roman emperor from 31 BC to 14 AD, and one of his titles, one of his titles was son of God. Caesar Augustus, the son of God. The Romans viewed him as a deity. The Romans viewed him as, as having, in a sense, the power of God. Who else could wield his hand and bring so many people under the same rule but Caesar Augustus? And in fact, and this is important when we understand the word gospel, there was a Roman inscription. And so on, this, on the, the left is, is Caesar Augustus. And then in this papyrus paper, there's an inscription that said this. Imagine, you've heard these words before. The beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It was written in that, in that manuscript. The beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. The beginning of the, of the euangelion of Caesar Augustus. Because he viewed what he was doing with ultimate power that he would bring goodness to everyone. But we know that under Rome's rule, there were some good things, but there were some really horrible things. And why I, I bring that up is because sometimes we immediately think the word gospel is Christian initially, but it has a history. It was used in a political time, in a political period for a political reason. The gospel, when it was first used, that word, it had no religious currency at the time. It, it, the only thing it meant is something big, something historic, something life-shaping is happening. And so that's why Caesar Augustus said, you know, that, that was inscribed for him. The gospel or Caesar, the beginning of, of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Something big was taking place. Now imagine that this obscure Jesus from Nazareth shows up on the scene. He only starts to get known at the age of 30, has no, you know, um, has no big family history, no dynasty like the Romans did. He steps onto the scene initially unnoticed, getting baptized in the wilderness with somebody with camel hair that eats locusts and talks to people in the wilderness. He gets baptized in the wilderness with other Jews, not other Romans, who generally were allowed to do their own thing under Rome's rule because Rome gave Herod some power to keep the Jews happy. And so they were okay. They can do their own thing. And out in the wilderness, that's fine. But that's where Jesus shows up in this obscure moment. But he shows up with this big announcement. The kingdom of God has come near. It didn't reach Rome yet. Only it would fully reach Rome, not even at his death and resurrection, but as his followers after his resurrection would become known as people of the way, then it would start to reach Rome and Rome would get nervous. But in that, in that moment in time, it, it wasn't that, like they really, he, they didn't, he wasn't on their radar. But Jesus shows up with a big announcement. The kingdom of God has come near, here, present, available, where everyone is invited to know the goodness of this king with healing hands who's going to renew creation. And if you can see and if you can hear and if you can recognize and if you long for it, you are welcome to come to turn your life around and to follow this king and to be part of his kingdom and to experience the life that he has for you. And so while many other times on a Sunday and other times we go into even further detail of this good news, I want to catch, I want to ask you this question today. 
Because this is a question that's on my mind as we enter this season is that it's on my mind when I read the news, uh, when I'm uh, talking with friends, when I'm talking with neighbors, when I'm interacting with people in our, in our culture. This is a question I have. Can this message still be shared today? Can this message of good news still be shared today? Is it possible? And I think the way we share this message can be both good and bad, right? The way we win people is what we win people to. So we want to do it well. But can we still share this message today? And, and here's the question behind the question is, some people say this. They're like, well, listen, today, I mean, like, like science is so popular and everything's so rationalistic and we've come out of the modern world since the 1800s. And, you know, I mean, like, who has room for God? Who has room for transcendence? Uh, look at, you know, some that have said, like, look at what religion has done. The, the phrase that Richard Dawkins would say is, like, religion poisons everything. Like, who even wants religion? Who even wants faith? Um, on an unfortunate side, and we have nobody else to blame for this, when people have been burned by the church or faith, and they walk away, not because the world has convinced them outside of their faith, but they've been hurt by that faith themselves. What do you do with that? So we live in a culture, we live in a society where there's a lot of reasons why people would say, I, I don't want any kind of news that's connected to anything religious or spiritual or God. And then what that normally leads us to, we often say this, well, wasn't it easier in that time period when Jesus first came? Like maybe when Jesus first came in that time period, you know, people more easily accepted faith. Uh, there was all kinds of gods that people worshipped. They had statues and this and that. And, you know, the Roman Empire welcomed all kinds of religions under their rule. Like, you know, maybe it was easier. I mean, faith, religion, spirituality. And, and I want us to consider that that was a pre-Christian world. And we no longer live in a Christian world, even in the West. We live in a post-Christian world. We'll talk about that in the next few weeks. But I want to just help, help us just kind of lean into the pre-Christian world because often we look at the pre-Christian world and say, man, they had it easy. Of course people would believe in God back then. Everybody believed in something. But the pre-Christian world, think about this. Jesus was not only new to the Jews because they had another kind of hope for their Messiah. They hoped that their Messiah would come and they, it would, he would free them and they would topple Rome and be out of, their, out of Rome's grab Jesus wasn't doing that. Jesus was new to the Jews. He, was, he, was, he, was, he threw them off guard a little bit, even though they missed some of the things in their own scriptures. He was new to the Jews, and he was new to the world. The Jews struggled to embrace him, and Rome, the Roman system crucified him. So, and, and the church later discovered that while Rome made room for every other religion, you, you, we could have been part of the Roman Empire in the first century with any religion, because Rome always made room for every religion. It was a very pluralistic society, as long as Rome was the main religion. Like, this is a Montreal metaphor. It would work this way. You can be a hockey team in Montreal. You're just never going to be the Canadians. You can play in any rink in the city, but you're not going to play in the Bell Center, right? Because the Canadians is our hockey religion. <laughs> In Rome, that's what it was. You can, you can believe anything you want as long as you pay homage to Rome. When the church started to grow, things were different. See, Christians only worshipped Jesus as the Son of God. They could never see Caesar Augustus as the Son of God. And that got them into some trouble. 
It ruffled feathers. They weren't as welcome as every other belief. That's part of the Christian world. And I don't know if you caught this. I actually only really saw this leading up to this series. In verse 14, before Jesus makes his big announcement, we get some context. It says, after John was arrested. After John was arrested, Jesus makes this announcement. Man, I mean, John was embraced in the wilderness. People were going to the water. He was baptizing people. Some of the Jews were excited about this possibility of God's kingdom arriving. They were listening to John, listening to this preparation for what was coming. But John was eventually put in prison. And John eventually posed a threat to Herod's credibility because Herod didn't like John. Herod was appointed by the Romans for the Jews. And Herod didn't like John. And so in one moment, John was welcomed. In another moment, he was completely rejected and he was put in prison. And it's in this moment, after the arrest of John, that Jesus makes his announcement. Talk about a horribly planned timing for an announcement. We got this great thing for you. And the people who've been talking about it, I'm sorry, they've been sent to prison. <laughs> like, talk about bad credibility in that moment. And it's in that moment after John's arrest that Jesus makes his announcement. Jesus' announcement is made in the middle of hostility. The good news went from, yes, where have you been all my life? I'm going to get baptized. To no, don't mess with people's loyalty with Herod and the emperor. The pre-Christian world wasn't as easy as we think. The pre-Christian world wasn't easy as we think it was to hear and listen to this good news of God's kingdom. But what about today? We live in a post-Christian world. We don't live in a world that is governed by a certain faith anymore. And I'm, I'm okay with knowing that God has been with the church in every century under any kind of government, in any culture. That's one of the beauties of Christianity. But we live in a post-Christian world. John, uh, Charles Taylor was a professor at McGill University. He wrote an incredible book called The Secular Age, like a 900-page book that describes the secular age. And basically, he summarizes our age in, one, in a view that says God has no real, is no real source of life. Kind of that's a little bit of the, what the secular age talks about. There's a good part of the secular age where it's like anything goes. And, we, and, and then there's some religious freedom in that. But there's a part of the secular age that a couple of three things. One, it was a private, it's a private public division. You can believe whatever you want, but believe it in, believe it in private. You can do it wrong, but believe it in private. Don't make it public. Another thing of, of the secular age, another key is fewer people are interested in religion or religious institutions. And a third part of the secular age is that all belief is contested. Is, 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 try, is tried to be proven or tested or, or maybe even antagonistically against. All religion is contested. All belief is contested and then made fragile, which then encourages people to imagine life with no sense of trans, uh, transcendent quality to it, nothing above us, nothing beyond us. So secularism, while there's some really good parts of it that give us freedom, also on one side says there's no living God who enters history or speaks to people. If you believe that, just keep it to yourself. That doesn't, that doesn't um, uh, deter me or my, or my sense of like what it means to share good news. It just, it just says this is our context. This is the world we live in. 
So why bother, and I'm going to end this today just asking this question, why bother sharing good news in a secular world? And, well, one, we have a king with healing hands. Amen? God's kingdom is good news, period. Whether people recognize it or not, God's kingdom full of justice and generosity and hospitality and compassion and reconciliation is good news. But here's why we bother to share good news in a secular world and we are not detoured is because good news will always find itself in the tension of hospitality and hostility. In a matter of days, John the Baptist went from being hospitably welcomed to in a hostile way rejected. And that's when Jesus shared that big announcement. We, in our culture, in any time of history, in our day and age, the good news will always land in the middle of tension, the tension of hospitality and hostility. We just got to recognize that. And just like John the Baptist had a season of hospitable welcome and one of hostility, every moment of history, the pendulum shifts for the welcome of the good news of God's kingdom, sometimes towards hospitality, sometimes towards hostility. Sometimes it's different in different pockets of the world. Sometimes it's different with your friends or neighbors. Sometimes, you know, one is, leans more hospitably, one leans more hostile. Some of you today were hostile to God's kingdom early in your life, but became hospitable to God's kingdom at a different time in your life. Isn't that true? That's part of your story. Even in our own lives, even in our own understanding and exploration and journey of knowing who God is, many of us have known what it meant to be hostile to God's, the good news of God's kingdom and hospitable to it. But Jesus calls us, just like his disciples, to join his communication campaign, to be co-announcers of God's kingdom coming near. Why? Because there's people like Israel that are longing for its fulfillment, and there's people like Rome that are longing for a better rule and a better life for a king with healing hands. Just this morning, I spoke to three individuals before, while we're setting up, a team, uh, someone here on the stage, uh, a person in Kids Quest, and someone out in the lobby, before we even started, and each of their stories demonstrated to me a hungry world that is in dire need of good news. A hungry world that's in dire need of good news. We're going to learn in the next few weeks how to take our cue from John the Baptist and Paul and Peter who made the way straight for Jesus. In other words, they prepared the soil. They, they encouraged fresh sensitivity. They were clued into their context and their culture. They gave people opportunity to respond to what God was doing through Jesus. Because I do believe whenever the announcement comes, there's always opportunity for recognition and response. There's always opportunity. I'm excited over the next few weeks to kind of help us just peel away some of the things even in our own culture so we don't, we don't stand back and say, oh my gosh, no one wants to hear this good news. Or to get mad at people because they're not, you know, thinking like we do or whatever. I, I really believe there's some really wonderful opportunity in our context today to be God's living in local presence and sharing this good news. And I'm going to end with this, this quote from Dallas Willard because he, he describes the announcement of the good news falling like this. And he says, he, he describes it like this. It's like a call for us to reconsider how we have been approaching our life in light of the fact that we now, in the presence of Jesus, 
have the option of living within the surrounding movements of God's eternal purposes, of taking our life into his life. Let me just read that again. When that announcement falls, when an announcement comes, when people will hear that, it's a call for us to reconsider how we have been approaching our life. Right? I'm going this way. Do I need to turn this way? In light of the fact that we now, in the presence of Jesus, have the option of living within the surrounding movements of God's eternal purposes. There's an option to join God's eternal purposes of taking our life into his life. So as we begin over the next few weeks to explore what sharing good news means in our secular world, please be reminded of this, right? The pre- and post-Christian worlds both had their challenges. We have our challenges. The pre-Christian world had their challenges. Every generation, including the first one who heard this news, responded either with hospitality or hostility. And the Gospels will go on to reveal, as you read them, that many people did encounter Jesus and got to see for themselves and prove, is this really good? Is this kingdom really good? Is Jesus really good? Is he really a representative of God's kingdom? Is he really the king? And then we're invited to alert others to this good news. So I invite us to just pause and pray before we end today. And... Maybe for, just for, for many of us here that would consider ourselves followers of Jesus and we, we, we really genuinely want to see our neighborhoods and our networks and our friends and our neighbors at least see the opportunity to recognize and understand and respond to God's, the gospel of God's kingdom. So let's be praying about that for the next few weeks. But maybe for some of you, maybe there's one, a few of you here today the best place for you to start is, is to even hear a little bit about what Willard said, but ultimately what Jesus said. You are invited. Just think about this. You are invited to live within the surrounding movements of God's eternal purposes. That's part of the invitation of the gospel. You're invited to take your life and put it into his life, to find life in him as you recognize who he is the truth of this announcement as you repent and turn away from the way you've been approaching life and the sin that reflects your even rejection of what God is doing and turn around and hear the words of Jesus. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Will you repent and believe in this news that brings joy. And if that's you today, I just encourage you right in this moment, if you're recognizing this already, to discern and consider your decision to follow Jesus like his disciples did. And there's this incredible promise that you will begin in slow fashion to experience God breaking not only into our world, God breaking into your life with his power and his presence that reflects his kingdom. Father, we thank you. This is so exciting. The coming of your kingdom near, here, available, breaking into our world with the promise of a fulfilled, renewed creation under your rule. God, that is so exciting. 
That is news that brings joy. Oh God, I pray that you would help us see the wonderful goodness of that. And God, as we consider joining you in alerting our friends and our family and our neighbors and the world around us to this, Lord, may we not be deterred or discouraged or put off when the pendulum shifts between hospitality and hostility. May we know that John and your son Jesus and Christ's first disciples and the early church and the church throughout history has known this in various ways. But God, over the next few weeks, help us to grow a a discernment, an understanding of the world we live in so that we win people to the proclamation of the good news of your kingdom and not something different or alternate or distorted because we know that's the best. That is the end result that we, you long for and we long for. So help us to grow in this, God, as we learn together. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.